This is Stinky Lulu Says, an irregular podcast about contemporary theater. I'm Brian Herrera, and I'm Stinky Lulu. I'm also a theater professor, and I see a lot of shows, and Stinky Lulu Says is where I have my say about what I see. And this current cycle of episodes, which have landed each Sunday, uh, starting at the end of August until now, which is, I guess, the end of November, I have offered weekly reflections on what it's been like to teach a college course on theater and society now, when all the theaters and all the colleges have been still trying to figure out what it means to do theater, to do college remotely during a global health crisis and in the midst of all of the still unfolding uncertainties that have defined the year 2020. Now in this week's episode, which indeed is our season finale, this cycle of episodes ends now with this week's episode, I will um, dedicate this week's episode to reflecting a bit on what the last 12 weeks have brought to my thoughts and to my experience and sort of my perspective on what we might know differently than we did just a few months ago. But the highlight of this week's episode is I will be joined by um, my voice will not be the only voice having a say this week because I'll be joined by five uh, contributors to my fall course, Theatre and Society Now, who will each in their in their different ways offer their perspectives on um, what's worth lifting, what's worth naming, and what's worth holding on to as we move forward beyond this semester as we look ahead to the end of 2020, uh, a year that will be uh, its own kind of legend, but as we also look around the corner and around the bend toward um, an uncertainty that continues to unfold, not only for the world at large, but particularly for performance, live performance as we know it, and as we're coming to know it in this extraordinary time. So, With all that said, here we go. So as I begin to record this uh, season finale for Cycle 3 of Stinky Lulu Says, when we are bringing to resolution, in some ways, the conversations that have been had via this podcast, that as they have intersected with um, the class as a whole. And what I will say is I'll just sort of give it for anybody who might not be in the class i'd like to offer some perspective on why this podcast exists first off this podcast exists for two primary reasons one is is when we um when we did the pedagogical shift uh to remote instruction at uh, abruptly um with next with just two or three weeks uh two weeks or so to adjust uh in the middle of march 2020 it became very clear um the way it worked at Princeton was we had the announcement, then it was the students normally scheduled spring break, and then we were coming back into instruction the week after spring break. Of course, during the week of spring break was the week when all the Princeton students had to pack up their bags and abruptly leave. And so in some ways they lost their spring break. I took that as my opportunity to sort of pause and reflect. I said, I'm not gonna, I I sort of canceled classes for the week after spring break uh, last spring and sort of really took the time to really give some thought and to try to try to build some intentionality into terms of 
what pedagogical methods I would be using. And one of the key things I began to realize was the pedagogical, there was an opportunity here. As we left the bubble of the campus, there was a way in which we could um, open that outward. And so one of the te- one of the choices I made was I decided whenever possible, I would try to create resources for my classes that could also be accessible beyond my classes. And so I thought a podcast might be an interesting way. And I also decided that a podcast would be more um, to my comfort zone and to my capacity than say a recorded lecture, which would also mean that there might be a way that we could adjust how much in-class time we had to do synchronously as folks. So I thought like, okay, if we have an hour of a podcast, then that's one hour less that we have to meet on Zoom. And so I thought like this sort of did two functions, introducing a multimodal um, sort of asynchronous and synchronous simultaneously. We'll meet every week as a group, but maybe not for as much time. And also we will have uh, some content that is that everybody in the class can engage prior to coming to conversation. So 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 that was part. Of, so it's this two two pronged impulse of both a kind of way of using the asynchronous strategy to sort of adjust how we expected to use our synchronous class time, but then also how we could maybe leverage, how I might be able to leverage the resources I build for my classes in ways that might serve other folks. When we came back together in uh, for the, uh, Theater and Society Now, I decided to continue that those techniques were developed for a class called Latinx Drama, 21st Century Latinx Drama. And so I decided to adapt and adjust those techniques for my fall class, Theater and Society Now. And so what I did, and I thought it was especially relevant for Theater and Society Now, which is in some ways was... Um, uh, a commentary on contemporary, it's always about sort of really engaging what are the hot topics, what are the current events in contemporary theater. And in the in 2020, the current events are pretty ongoing, pretty dynamic and pretty complex, ranging between um, the economic and health impacts of the pandemic, but then also dealing with the broadspread, broad spread, uh, uh, widespread, excuse me, reckoning with um, uh, accessibility and inclusion and broadly uh, and commitment to anti-racist uh, a racist ethos that is manifesting as both imperative and project in a variety of different theaters. Now, of course, one thing I didn't mention already was uh, last last uh, spring in for 21st century Latinx drama, um, I developed what became the template for the podcast, which was dedicating roughly half of the podcast to thinking about what was going on in the contemporary moment, in some ways documenting what was happening in conversation around theater as we began to theater, what is theater and what is higher education in this moment of remote of remote pivot. And then the second half was dedicated to discussing a particular show or production. That template was the template. If you if you've been listening to the podcast, you realize I followed. I followed roughly uh, for the most part. There's been some departures this semester, but for the most part, I tried to balance sort of commentary on current events with a balance on uh, uh, attending to the particularities of performances that had caught my interest or caught my imagination or just I happened to watch that week. So those were sort of the parameters, and indeed, part of what this allows is a this has allowed me as a space of uh, gathering my thoughts, gathering my thoughts for class, and also creating this, creating a, a mechanism for the for students who can have their full complement of class time. Uh, and we also have a little bit more dynam- dynam- dynamism within it. And so, so that's the basic rough parameters is I was core, two core impulses. And these are impulses, I think, whenever you teach college, you're always sort of going like, is this the right way to do it? Is this working? How can I get better at it? 
And indeed, that's what I will be doing as the podcast goes on hiatus over the next two months is really beginning to think about what is the way if the podcast is to continue for this class when I do teach it again in the spring. Um, what shape will it take? Is it doing what is my approach to it? How is it different? And that's where I think I'm grateful for the opportunity to reflect a little bit about what's going what the podcast has done to this point. Um, because the podcast, uh, as I look as I survey, survey um, the the titles, what what we've really um, done in this podcast over the course of the last uh, three months has been really considering uh, sort of the hot, these questions that have oscillated between the logistical questions of the ecological and, and economic crisis forced by the pandemic, engaging things like what does theater leadership look like? What does it mean to reopen? Um, also the question of how do we can, how are we to document theater in the midst of the pandemic and what are the ways and what are the rituals, um, what are the rituals like Tony awards? Like, what are they, what's the point of them? Why are they there? Why do we use pre-show announcements and why do we, and then in some ways I have used the podcast as a way to rehearse and explore some of the ideas I have been very interested in, which is the question of, are we in a period of developing a new genre, a new form of theater in this period that is going to sort of endure and influence? You know, we've seen different historical moments have led to the innovation of both forms of theater and approaches to theater that have had enduring historical implications. And my feeling is that this turn of remote theater, this turn to remote theater, has actually opened up some key questions. And I'm, I'm struck by um, one of the things that has these are and these are some of the things I've I've really been considering and asking, and I've interested that three of my interlocutors this some this in this episode three of the voices I'll be bringing in have each taken up uh, different angles on this question of what are the enduring lessons to be taken from this period of remote theater going. And so what I'll do is I'll shift gears, and you'll won't have to listen to me, but you'll be listening to some other folks, and so because. Um, three of the threads that have come up is I've really examined and really wondered about what does it mean, this moment mean in terms of its historical reverberations? How are we going to be living with this moment well beyond this moment in a, in a perhaps productive and creative way? What are theater makers and theater presenters learning about the craft and the form now? And one of the key threads that has come out throughout the, throughout the semester has really dealt with questions of equity, inclusion, and diversity. And because um, if you look at the titles of the episodes over the last few months, you'll see that there's also, in addition to the logistics and the economics and the, and the practicalities of what does it mean to make theater in this moment, there's also a lot of questions about anti-racism, what, what, what to do with demands, what do we do with an accountability pledge, and what happens when a demand goes unheeded, all of which are in some ways reflecting back on the historical moment that we're living in, which is this question around uh, where the ethos and practices and principles of anti-racism are really guiding a lot of what's going on in the theater industry as well as in the world at large. And one of the, so I, I so I'm going to start, I'm going to bring in um, a voice uh, from from one of the contributors to theater and society now, Angelica King, who is going to be talking a little bit about the tensions and the practices and the promises and the problems and the uncertain, like the question of what does accessibility mean? And, and what does this moment teach us about how theater might be more accessible moving forward? So here, I'm gonna turn it over to Angelica. 
Hi, my name's Angelica. I'm in Princeton's class of 2023, and I'm a student theater maker on campus, primarily a stage manager, but I do a lot of other things as well. Um, so when I had signed up for this class in like March or April, I was really excited because according to the course description, we'd be watching a lot of theater. Now, little did I know that the entire fall 2020 semester would be online, all the theaters would be closed, so all the theater I'd be watching in this class would be online. Um, so as that became more apparent, I was a little less enthusiastic, but I'm actually really glad that I got to watch all these shows online now because it made me realize the potential for virtual theater to make theater more accessible and inclusive. Um, and I think a really good example of this is Hold These Truths. So Theater Works Silicon Valley released um, their 2018 production of Hold These Truths on Vimeo, right? Um, and it was like, pay what you can pricing, and then you'd get a password and you could watch it. So it was like really cheap. Um... Uh, and it's the story of this Japanese-American man who resists Japanese-American internment during World War II. And it was particularly transformative for me because, you know, as an Asian woman, as an Asian person, you know, when I was a kid, I had never really, like, gone to the theater at all. But, like, when I did, I never really saw any Asian people on stage, um, right? And this is one of the first shows where, like, the lead was an Asian-American and it was written by an Asian-American. So it mattered a lot to me. Um, and something that I noticed, though, was that, like, when you looked at the audience in the recording, because you could see them at certain points, um, they were all white, and there were a lot of, like, old white people, right? Which is kind of what you'd expect from, like, the audience of a regional theater, but it was a little disappointing, because I was like, you know what, there were, like, I, I feel like if this was transformative for me, like, I'm sure it would be transformative for so many other Asian people, um, and they don't really get to watch it. And why is that? Well, because they probably don't have the resources or um, the money or the time or the the knowledge about theater to, to be seeking this out or to be able to afford to go. But, you know, here I am, an Asian college student, um, paying like $5 to watch this online, right? And it's made me realize that maybe releasing stuff like Hamill film or Hold These Treats Online could introduce theater to a wider, more diverse audience, to people who can't afford to go to the theater, who don't really know about theater, right? Um, and it can help a lot of other, you know, BIPOC youth have these transformative experiences that I had, like I had. Um, you know, and I know that there are always issues with copyright and stuff like that, but it seems like more theaters have been willing to release shows online during COVID-19. I'm wondering if this trend will continue after the pandemic is over. I'm not sure how optimistic I am about that because of copyright laws and, like, capital capitalism, but, you know, I hope theaters see this as an opportunity for change. So one of the things I find most captivating about what Angelica is naming there is both the promise and the, on the well, I, let's call it the uncertain promise of the accessibility here. This question of like, we there's all these techniques and uh, me mechanisms that have been discovered about how to make theater accessible to more folks who may not have the means or the opportunity to travel to the, the to the live presentation and yet we don't necessarily and so there's been incredible creativity and innovation around that and yet it's also unclear what the commitment is to will be to it beyond the moment of crisis and i think that's a really i think of all of the takeaways from from what our moment is that's i think 
um, I'm with Angelica in being very optimistic and very excited, but also very wary about what's going to fall away as being we can't do that because we can't make money off of it or um, we can't do it because of the copyright issues. I am heartened by the fact that there have been, even among the most obstinate unions, sort of increasing w awareness that, uh, that what had been the 20th century model of what distribution of theatrical property looks like it has to change. And I think if anything, that is a learning space that I think this generation of theater makers um, will bring forward to them as they become leaders in the field. And so I'm hoping that Angelica, as well as other theater folk um, who are who are really coming to artistic maturity and professional and entering the profession right now are really sort of bringing forward some of these principles. And I'm, I, I'm, I'm warily optimistic. So I am optimistic. I am wary. I'm going to, I'm going to lean toward warily optimistic that we are going to see some major changes. So let's see. But one of the other threads that has come up in terms of this uh, perennial question about does remote theater, um, is it theater? Is it a is it a pale proxy? Is is it sort of an emergency mechanism, or is it its own thing? And that's something that we I have been really interested in, and, and because I've been interested in, I'm the teacher. It's been foregrounded as a topic in a lot of our class discussions. But one of the things that I've come to think a lot about is what about the the audience performance relationship, and and how is the um, the role of the audience understood? Are they understood as passive consumers? Are they understood as inter interactive participants? Or are is there another way to think about it in terms of uh, fortifying a sort of an awareness of a mutual reciprocal relationship? And indeed, that question of relationality, I think, is one of the questions I'm still really exploring. And it is, in some ways, part of what I'm really committed to with the idea of remote theater, this idea of not understanding it in terms of platform, but in terms of proximity and relationship. Um, and and that's why I was so interested to hear my next uh, guest, as it were, my next interlocutor, um, Aria, Aria Buchanan, to, who's going to be talking a little bit about um, this question of what is the connection? How can a remote theater performance activate a connection in an audience member? So here we go to Aria. Hi, my name is Aria and I'm a junior at Princeton in the Ecology and Evolutionary Biology Department. I love theater and have been acting since sixth grade, but until this class had never really thought about analyzing theater critically. It was more of a fun activity than a discipline of study, which is why I've really enjoyed this class. It's allowed me to think critically about the value of the economic and social role of theater in American society. For the first time, rather than taking the theater I was involved in for granted, I was able to question what theater is and how public perception of theater shapes its definition. One of the most shocking realizations during this inquiry was this necessity for liveness in theater. After virtually attending both live and asynchronous theater performances this semester, I realized that liveness is actually not the one defining element of theater. I believe this argument was expressed quite well in Lin Lindsay Brandon Hunter's article, we are not making a movie, constituting theater in live broadcast. Hunter argues that theater does not need to be defined through liveness, but rather through theatrical conventions that are maintained and emphasized in digital theater productions. These theatrical conventions, I realized, were things that I had used myself when performing and not even labeled as conventions. 
they just sort of came as a second nature, like an understanding of acting for theater that I didn't even realize was deeper than my own personal acting instincts. And one of these most important conventions that I had come, that I have come to believe is one of the major things that makes theater theater was the idea of this relationship built between the audience and the performers. This struck me specifically while engaging with Ego Poe's classic theater's Emily, um, in which I, as an audience member, was sent physical letters from the late poet Emily Dickinson. This performance had no physically embodied performers at all, and it was definitely not live because I was receiving these letters, but it still very much felt like theater for me because it established a very clear relationship between the audience member receiving these letters, which unveiled very personal parts of Emily's life, and this character of Emily. I felt connected to Emily Dickinson, a famous poet, in a way that only theater could allow me to be. Even in these remote settings, with recorded performances, digital theater experiences, there is still a sense of these performers are creating this experience for the audience. Like you've bought this ticket or you've been emailed this Zoom link or YouTube link and you're here attending this performance and you as the audience member are supposed to be there. This is for you to experience. And that's kind of its sole purpose is to have an impact on the audience. And as someone not used to really being an audience member, that realization was really incredible for me. And Arya's commentary about Emily and her experience of Emily, I think also activates some really interesting questions that historians are gonna have the opportunity to reckon with, I think, um, is the question of documentation. Because uh, the question of how do we, one of the ways that's an interesting paradox of this moment is um, the internet is not permanent. Lots of things are on the internet and disappear. And so the question of archival trace and archival trace is something that I, I'm very interested to see how it survives. And one of the fascinating things about a project like Emily, Egopo's production of Emily, is there's going to be lots of archi archival trace of Emily because it actually exists in paper. Like it's not a streaming or a live event or a social media event. You know, like there's been a lot of TikTok performances, but, but as we saw this year, there was a possibility that TikTok would be decommissioned as a platform. So what would happen to all of that content? And I do think we're in a space and I think librarians and archivists and historians and others are very interested in this question of documentation and how is documentation going to work? How is it going to survive? How is it going to, there's a really interesting project at the UT Austin archives there, Harry Ransom Center led by Dr. Eric Caleri of really attempting to document this moment and figuring out ways that ways that this material can go into an archive. But then there's the other aspect of the way that this moment of activating recording as a new mechanism of documentation, uh, both for participation and also for scholarly engagement, is something I think that is very uh, 
very compelling and very interesting about this moment and some of the unexpected ways that I think this will shape in terms of what we think theater is or the ways we find our ways into theater. And that's in some ways what Norman Champ, my next um, guest, as it were, uh, uh, my ne- the next voice in the podcast, Norman, Norman takes on this question of what does this moment tell us about the possibilities of documentation and what does it open for us as a prom as a problem and as a possibility in terms of the ways in which we might appreciate the, the multi-dimensional facet feature of what theater is both this moment and beyond so here we go to norman Hi everyone, my name is Norman and I'm in the class of 2022. I'm an art history major and my independent work focuses on 19th century European figure painting. And as someone who loves art, I've always been interested in documentation of events and objects. In theater and society now, we have discussed how the intervention of virtual platforms changes the experience of theater. With heavy reliance on these platforms during the pandemic, uh, recordings of performances have become more prevalent and accessible. However, in the past, Video or audio recording was limited and in many cases prohibited. But there are some forms of recording that are left that I believe are helpful and even necessary for our understanding of what theater once meant. These include recordings of high school performances, theater academy productions, productions in which there were no restrictions by the company against recording. But there are also other forms of recording of performances that exist on YouTube. Um, This could be from different perspectives, such as backstage or even the orchestra pit. Seeing the show from the perspective of the drummer, bass player, whatever, this will give you a new interpretation of the performance. Trust me, it's a lot of fun to hear the xylophone and the shaky egg more loudly than the voice of the lead actor. These forms of recording highlight the spontaneity in theater that has been lost due to the restrictions of COVID. Perhaps in the future, After this is over, our improved understanding of technology will lead to more forms of recording such as this. Go on YouTube, check out some parts of the theater that you never got to see. I know it does not make up for an in-person experience, but in THR 385, resourcefulness was one of the skills we had to hone. Now, with the pandemic, we have limited access to different perspectives since all we have is a screen. However, for now, I think that this is the closest that we can get. I think Norman's commentary also opens up some really interesting questions about um, improvisation, about creativity, about the ways that um, we have seen in this moment, this remarkable period. We've seen an extraordinary way in which folks are the rules are bent, like the rules are broken, all rules are off. So people are doing things in ways that they haven't ever done before. Sure, some prohibitions have been relaxed, but then also there's a lot of things about like, what are gonna be the rules? Like everything's broken, like there's, like the way we're supposed to do it, there's no way to do it that way. So there's a lot of opportunity for innovation and creativity. And one of the ways that I have found that to be quite striking is as a person who studies and researches theater and who teaches about theater and theater making um, and has done so for a good number of years, this has been a period, I will say, and I and I don't think it's only because I've been curating the Theater Click newsletter every week that I've been paying attention to this. But what I have noticed in compiling the Theater Click newsletter, which I have compiled for the previous iterations of this class, 
um, before, so I have a little bit of point of comparison, is what I have been aware of this last few months um, since I've reactivated the Theater Click newsletter has been how many voices are entering the conversation. And this is um, folks who often weren't the folks who were speaking, like folks like actors, technicians, um, uh, designers, uh, not even like folks who are working uh, uh, in front of house or production, folks who are unemployed, folks like a lot of folks are, are sure speaking to journalists, but also and sure commenting on social media, but also contributing to um, writing articles, uh, contributing to podcasts, starting podcasts. Like, so, so I do think we're in a space, um, and this is a both about the economic realities and the ecological challenges and the health and the health uncertainties of the pandemic, but also about the ongoing reckoning about racial and uh, racial justice and racial inclusion. But what I think we've seen is we've seen a lot of folks not so I wouldn't say finding their voice, but perhaps having the time, perhaps having the having ha having the impulse or the imperative, um, having uh, deciding that I'm not going to wait to go through official channels. I'm just going to put this out there. You know, we see folks making stuff, putting stuff, uh, building uh, projects that are totally independent projects that are um, uh, web series or uh, blog or blog series or short uh like books uh, people like a number of artists have come to collaborate to make books so there's i mean i just feel like there's an incredible um way in which the conventional channels of the way you're supposed to have something done have in some ways ceased to be as relevant and of course this is in tandem with the social media moment where there's a lot of ways to put this stuff out there but again i think what we're hearing in this moment is voices we're hearing voices creatively and we're hearing voices express very specifically or eloquently, articulately and profoundly what the experience means for them and what it tells them about the industry to which they might have de devoted a great deal of their life and, and about the sometimes crisis of faith, sometimes renewal of vision, sometimes. But I do think the fact that we have had the opportunity to listen to so many more voices is one of the remarkable moments and will be one of the ways that this moment will be an enduringly rich one for historians to come. And I, I do that as a way to sort of open up what we're going to hear from our next contributor, Molly Bremer, who offers us a bunch of different voices, um, not only a uh, sort of a, a witty poetic uh, sort of riff on some of what's going on, but also a composite of other voices that Molly has brought in so that we can hear some of the ways and all, all the ways that we can hear different voices give name to all of the experiences that we are collectively having right now. So the individual idiosyncrasy, but also the collectiveness of it. Like that's what I find so interesting about Molly's contribution. And um, without saying anything more, I would like to turn to Molly now. Hi, my name is Molly and I'm a junior at Princeton and I love goofiness. So in thoughts of a theater remote and the class to which this I devote, unconventional ways made sense of the days so a limerick here and I wrote. We checked in with each other each week to talk of theater in times most unique, a history unfolding we all were beholding and documenting as we speak. An art form now redefined as the theater like us moved online. Not shared air and assembly nor liveness and frenzy, reimagination gave theater its spine. 
We audiences seek recognition even as we forgo some theater traditions. In these chats and Zooms all alone in our rooms, we hope connection comes to fruition. We look for theater that speaks to the moment, perhaps with puppet or TikTok components, but mostly we hope to have seen, once we have closed all our screens, a theater accessible, anti-racist, and open. So to close this brief silly ditty, as I sit quarantined in my city, I would like to thank, with this goofy little prank, my professor and classmates so witty. So those are a few of my thoughts that will be staying with me far after this class is over. And I also just wanted to include something that was such a highlight for me during this course, which was our assignment to have conversations with theater makers. I chatted with various musical theater makers, specifically performers, a high school teacher, and a production and operations manager of a local theater. And each of those conversations were so varied, but also just brought such a new level of understanding and also just connection and humanity to the articles and subjects we were discussing. So I was so grateful for that assignment and I wanted to share some snippets with you. The ball is in everyone's court to make something. So, you know, that's, that's hard. In normal times, even out of work, there are ways in which to feel connected to the practice of the work. And I've had a really tough time with that. I'll be candid. It's like, I think musical theater among the art forms is the most affected. Also, not able to get licenses to even do any of the musicals virtual. Uh, you have to know the creator and kind of go the background. You can't just go to MTI and do it that way. And it also seems like the bigger theaters are getting those deals before us, the mid-size and small theaters. You can do a play on Zoom. Some of the elements are there, right? People are talking, they're talking to each other. They can happen live. But with musical theater, like, you can't sing in someone else's presence, really. The technology is really has to be sound to like layer the voices. I wonder sometimes how to activate my voice and the voices that I want to uplift without the practice of what I do. What are people actually committed to? Their artistry? Were they committed to seeing a different industry? Were they committed to seeing the old industry, how it used to operate? Or were they interested in um, justice? As I noted in my opening sort of commentary, most weeks of the podcast were split between talking about what was going on that week or the hot topics or the current events that seemed to captivate, seemed to be at center for me that week. Um, uh, and then the second half would would pivot to talking about what I had observed in terms of the remote performances I had engaged that week. And so it's fitting in some ways that our final, uh, uh, our final gesture in this week's podcast will come, our final contribution will come from, a, from one of the course contributors, uh, Destiny Rivera, who will be reflecting a little bit on two performances that she saw. And I think what's really, um, what I appreciate about Destiny's comments uh, is the ways in which she reminds us that part of what we're doing is we're relearning how to be audience members. We're relearning some of the ways in which we assume theater is supposed to be, and we're relearning, and this is not unlike what we've heard from Angelica and Aria and Norman and Molly already, is what, what we're really in a space of doing is figuring out new ways to be an audience new ways to admire work, new ways to be in space and to share, to give what we give as audience members, the sort of this, the witness, the acknowledgement, the engagement, we're discovering new vocabularies in that realm as well. That the ways we went to the theater before, well, 
likely return. I don't know when, how quickly or how soon, but I think what the ways that we have learned to appreciate theater in this moment will also return with us. And I do think that that's a hallmark, that's a, that's a, note, a note to self for the future, that when we return, we will not be returning to theater as it was, but we were, we were going to be returning to the practice of in-person theater making as we discover what theater will be in the future. And I think that Destiny's comments offers two cues about when the show does go on, it will likely go on in a slightly different way than we might have expected just a year ago. Here's Destiny. Hi, my name is Destiny, and I'm a senior at Princeton. I want to take this time to talk about online or remote theater. Yes, it's much different than any other theater I've ever engaged with before. However, I think it's truly astonishing the amount of creativity and true compassion theater makers have been able to portray during these quarantine times. I'd like to focus on two productions that I have been able to engage with through this class, Romantics Anonymous and Human Resources. Romantics Anonymous was a play streamed live about a chocolate maker who finds love. The production in itself was great, but there were some technical difficulties, such that the sound lagged the action. In the world of theater, a constant phrase utilized is, the show must go on. And this production, they decided to stop the entire show in order to attempt to fix the issue. And once the issue was fixed, then they restarted the whole production. This was a great choice, I thought, because one, it allowed the audience to see the production as intended, and it also exhibited one of the many issues that we are all facing during these times of only online. On the other hand, human resources was completely different, and rather than try to adjust theater to online, these theater makers created an entirely new piece of theater that was completely audio. As such, this production focused on the nuisances of making calls and only reaching an automated voice message. I found the production hilarious and very interactive as you had to press different numbers to choose your preferred option. This type of theater not only allowed for a production to be heard, but also allowed for interaction and autonomy of the audience. These two very different productions show that being pushed online did not only create drawbacks, but also push theater makers to think outside the box. So how far will we go? And what's next? If you haven't engaged with online theater yet, I suggest you have an open mind and just go for it. I love Destiny's invitation there. Uh, have an open mind and just go for it. It is a great reminder, I think, in terms of what uh, remote theater, the promise, the potential, um, and the fact that it is a learning opportunity. Because I think that one of the habits that we often have in contemporary theater making that often, uh, I don't know, contemporary theater making, that's not the right way to say it. I think one of the habits that often when we advocate for theater, we try to advocate it for it as a special commodity. Uh, this thing, maybe this calls back a little bit to sort of Angelica's wariness about what uh, accessibility might offer is the question of is performance, is live performance, is theater a commodity or is it uh, something else? And I do think in our contemporary capitalist, neoliberal kind of moment, everything's a commodity. 
And yet, I think the opportunity of remote theater going and indeed the question of the ways in which the theater industry, among all industries that have been disrupted in this period, but really the live performance industry has been disrupted in in fundamental and on and ways that will have reverberations moving forward. I do think what we have to learn here is the space about how to maintain an open mind maintain um, a a willingness to just sort of go for it and to see what we can learn from this moment. Not to say that we have to abandon or forego the things we treasure, the things we value, the artistic forms, the artistic practices, the cultural forms, the cultural practices that are, have been what have made theater a 3000 year tradition globally. But I do think that this is also a reminder for us to say, rather than reject it as not the commodity we like, um, that, uh, you know, and this goes back to some of the earliest conversations I had in this podcast of this idea of, of, um, and it's something that's come up over and over again for me, is just this idea of hearing colleagues and friends and others reject, I just don't like Zoom theater. This idea of this genre, of turning it into a kind of a genre and and a thing, just like I would hear people say, I don't like Shakespeare or I don't like musical theater this way of sort of dismissing out of hand a kind of practice or commodity. Um, And that I thought was an interesting signal that Zoom theater, remote theater, whatever we like, and I choose, I prefer the term remote theater, was actually uh, had a kind of an interesting status that was interesting for us to learn from. And, And that's the practice I have attempted to do in the podcast and the Theater Click newsletter is try to sort of hold on to this space of let's have an open mind. Let's listen to the voices. Let's forget about some of our habits of industry, um, like theater and theater is different from film or um, industry sort of industrial boundaries. Let's uh, think beyond some of our habits of like, that's not real theater or that's not professional theater or that's not amateur theater. That's not important theater. Some of these hierarchies that we sometimes will bring in. How do we learn from student theater makers, from community amateur, non-professional theater makers? How do we learn from the theater makers who are working in the commercial realms? How do we learn from theater makers who are working in, um, in not-for-profit, but at high, high-profile institutions. What can we learn from places, things like Saturday Night Live? What can we learn from places like Disney? What can we learn from the from the challenges faced by cinema owners, like the folks, like not so much cinema producers, but cinema owners? Um, like what, where, where are the ways, where, who are the voices that we should listen to? Who are the places that we should keep an ear and an eye open to, to take seriously what they're offering as insights for us as we sort of gather what we need um, so that whenever we return, whatever that return looks like, that we can be able to have the tools that have been discovered because this has been a period of crisis, also a period of innovation, also a period of transformation and also a period of reckoning. And there are so many insights and discoveries for all of us, whether we're theater makers or college people, we're like in theater and higher ed, this is a space for in the midst of the crush of trying to make it work, how can we create just a narrow lane, a minor narrow lane to hold on to the lessons, the learnings, the insights, the things that we now understand that we care about. How can that recalibrate our our orientation as we move forward? How can that recalibrate where we choose to prioritize, invest our energies? There were fairly particular trajectories of success, of status, of resource allocation, of, of all of those questions of priority and privilege and prestige that guided what theater mattered 
prior to the pandemic. And what I'm seeing in the course of this last year has been a lot of that has been flattened. There's been an incredible way where none of those none of those structures of priority, power and prestige and privilege have really been operating. They're, they're all on pause. And so that has opened up a kind of a horizon, a lateral view that I think it is to all of our benefits to listen to destiny and say, keep an open mind and go for it and see what we're seeing and to let it change how we let it inform, if not change, let it inform how we choose to make our craft moving forward. How we, whether, whether, whether your craft is as an artist or as a teacher, or as an audience member, how can we um, acknowledge the fact that no matter how stretched we are, we are learning. And how do we hold on to those lessons and how to create just enough space to give ourselves just enough bandwidth to hold on the things that have been clarified for us. This is not about massive exegesis of taking the time to write up all your deep reflections. This is a matter of doing a quick self-check, just doing a quick self-check and saying, what do I now know for sure I care about te my teaching? I care about the kinds of collaborators I want. I care about the kind of art I engage. I care about the kind of communities I'm, I'm, I want to make sure my work serves. What do we... Like, I'm not saying you're going to have an answer to all those questions, but you probably have an answer to something like that. So what is that? How do we hold on to that? And how do we hold on to that as we move forward? So I'm not by nature an optimist. I am by nature a, um, a, a convener. I am somebody who wants to bring thoughts together. I want to bring people together. And I do think that that is how we go forward. How we go forward and how we grow forward is, and that's the mantra that always concludes every episode of the podcast. It's so long as we can keep listening to each other, we can grow forward. And that is, I think the only way we can listen to each other is if we also listen to ourselves. So I know many of the students listening to this podcast are completely strapped, completely stressed, completely overwhelmed. But take a moment, take a pause, take a breath and ask yourself, what have you learned? What do you now know? What do you know now know about how you like to work, the ways you work well, the, the, ways, of, the ways of working that are not sustainable for you or not really worth it, that the reward is not worth the, worth the risk of just putting that much time in? How do we hold on to that? Because those little bits of insight, when we, when we gather those and we treasure those and we hold them as, they, as the gems, the hard forged gems of insight into ourselves and to our communities as we, as we encounter them in these times of stress and times of tension as we do now, that's how we can build ourselves forward. That's how we will have the foundation moving forward. And that's what we can share. Those gifts of knowledge are of self-knowledge what will be the root of what we have to offer as we move forward. So um, my little bit of, of, I don't know, warily optimist again, I'll go back to the warily optimist. Let's, let's do this. Let's keep going. It's been a remarkable few months. And for those of you who've been listening because it's a course requirement, thanks for listening. Those of you who've been listening just because thanks for listening. And with that, I will send us out as we normally do. It's the end of this uh, season three of Stinky Lulu Says. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening. And until next time, here we go. Stinky Lulu Says is an independent project of Stinky Lulu Productions recorded on the unceded traditional territory of the Nanticoke Lenni Lenape people. 
The podcast, Stinky Lulu Says, began briefly in the summer of 2016 with a short cycle of six episodes. You can still find them if you go hunting on SoundCloud. After then laying dormant for a few years, the podcast came back to life, uh, was rebooted in its way in the spring of 2020 and kind of the emergency moment of the COVID-19 shutdown. And the podcast came back to life, both as a way to respond to the unfolding crisis and as a teaching resource for the course I was then teaching, 21st Century Latinx Drama. After those so after about six episodes, the first, that cycle came to a brief summer's hiatus. And then um, when the fall rolled around, with our campus still closed, uh, Stinky Lulu's returned with what have been weekly episodes since the end of August of 2020. And those episodes have continued nearly uh, weekly until um, now, until today, November 22nd. Uh, and all of these episodes have been a key part of the continuing conversation happening in my fall 2020 course, Theater and Society Now. Um, so it's worth noting today that uh, we will pause production of Stinky Lulu Says. Uh, and I'm not sure whether we're pausing it permanently or temporarily or indefinitely or what. Um, I will be teaching theater and society now again come the spring of 2021 because indeed the sort of the work of the class is as relevant again uh, in quick succession and also as we continue sort of journeying through this period of transition in the American theater more broadly. Uh, and it is entirely possible that the podcast will again start up in January 31st, uh, probably on Sunday, January 31st, 2021. That would be my guess of if a podcast, another episode of the podcast does drop, it'll probably drop then. But um, I'm not entirely sure. Everything's uncertain. We'll see. We'll see if the podcast makes sense as a curricular component. Um, and I will be doing, uh, we'll be using the downtime over the next two months to contemplate the comparative value of this podcast pedagogy experiment. And indeed, uh, I would very sincerely recommend, uh, welcome any thoughts or uh, any listeners from beyond the, beyond, beyond the Theater Society Now bubble, or even uh, those anybody who's listening uh, from within the bubble, um, I welcome your input as to the uh, whether the podcast should continue, whether it seems an important part of the work uh, that needs to be done in this particular moment. Um, and even if you don't have any thoughts about the podcast, but you just want to say hi, as always, if you have something you would like to have your say about what Stinky Lulu says, you can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Stinky Lulu, S-T-I-N-K-I-L-U-L-U. And you can always email me via my Princeton address or at StinkyLulu at gmail.com. Links to the resources in this episode can mostly be found in the in this today's edition, the October 22nd edition of the Theater Click newsletter. For a link to the newsletter's archive and to other resources, look for the Profe Herrera tab on my Princeton University Scholar page. That's scholar.princeton.edu slash bherrera. I do should note that I do expect to be continuing to uh, releasing mostly weekly installations of the Theater Click newsletter. Um, uh, even when the podcast is on hiatus. Uh, and um, as always, the direct link to the Profe Herrera tab is the pinned tweet on my Twitter profile page, at Stinky Lulu. That Profe Herrera tab is where you'll find the link to the transcripts for today's episodes, as well, and transcripts are typically available within a few days, 48, 72 hours, uh, or give or take, of the podcast for closing. Are posting. Um, and as I resolve this week, I will close by repeating the words that have been a mantra for the entirety of fall 2020, the words of Dr. Kamara Phyllis-Jones, be strong, be safe, anti-racist. 
um, these words have become a sort of a daily reminder, affirmation, prayer, mantra, whatever we're going to call it, uh, as we as we journey through the ups and downs of this extraordinary season uh, in our his in our lives, where the only thing that has felt uncertain certain is the feeling of uncertainty. So until the next time, as you maintain your social distance, as you do what you can to um, stay connected with family and friends, while also staying as far away from them as possible, um, as necessary, given travel and reality. And please, as you wear your dang mask and, and adhere to the guidelines of your local community, I uh, please ask, I, I, I do hope you do what you can to take care of yourself and your beloveds. And as we all do whatever we can do along all of these lines, as we stay fierce in both our artistry and our advocacy, I invite you to join me in my belief that so long as we find a way to keep listening to each other, we together can grow forward, even through this. At least, that's what Stinky Lulu always says. <laughs>